Our scripture reading this morning comes from selected verses found in Exodus chapters 33 and 34. The Lord said to Moses, Depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt, to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, To your offspring I will give it. I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. When the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned, and no one put on his ornaments. And he said to them, If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, This very thing that you have spoken, I will do for you, have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses says, Please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock. And I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. The Lord said to Moses, Cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets, which you broke. Be ready by the morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me on the top of the mountain. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sin, but will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children, to the third and the fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. And he said, if now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us. For it is a stiff-necked people and and pardon our iniquity and our sin and take us for your inheritance. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, As he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses, and behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them, and Aaron and all the leaders of the congregation returned to him, and Moses talked with them. Afterward, all the people of Israel came near, and he commanded them all that the Lord had spoken with him in Mount Sinai. And when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. Whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would remove the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the people of Israel what he was commanded, 
the people of Israel would see the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face was shining, and Moses would put the veil over his face again until he went in to speak with him. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Good morning, y'all. My name is John. I'm one of the pastors here. Welcome to Redeemer City Church. We're glad that y'all are with us this morning. Sorry there was a lot of text this morning. Um, There's just a lot in those two chapters. And we're moving through Exodus fast, but there was a lot there that we wanted to talk about. Um, If you've heard me preach before, I tend to ask a lot of questions as I preach because I want the text to really force us to ask a lot of questions of our own heart. I will ask some questions today, but less than usual because I think these two chapters, they are asking questions, but they're pointing us to something. They're pointing us towards Jesus. And so as we read the text this morning, and as you listen to me, be thinking about how is this pointing to Jesus? How is Jesus the answer this morning in this text? Again, we're glad you're with us. Uh, For the past few months, we've been going through the book of Exodus. So just as a recap, this is the story of how God has rescued his people from slavery in Egypt. So the people have, at this point, left Egypt. They've traveled into the wilderness. They've arrived at Mount Sinai, where God directed them to go. Their leader, Moses, who we've read about, went up to the mountain to receive God's commandments. He stayed there for about six weeks And that led us to Exodus 32 that Jonathan took us through last week. And at the height of the people's impatience as they waited for Moses to come back down and weren't sure where he went, and their lack of faith in God as evidenced through the wilderness with their grumbling and complaining, things reached a tipping point and they asked Aaron, Moses' brother, to make a golden calf for them to worship. Moses is so angry when he comes down, so angry at their sin that he breaks the tablets of stone that God had written his commandments on. And then at the end of the chapter, he begs God not to destroy Israel for this great sin. And that's where we'll pick up this week. Jonathan ended last week talking about Moses as a mediator between God and the people. And that theme continues into chapter 33 and 34 that we're going to look at this morning. And so we want to unpack this idea, mediator. What is a mediator? Well, at the most basic level, the definition of a mediator is a person that settles a dispute between two parties. So we usually hear that term in in the legal world, right? A lawyer will, a mediator will step in and, and arbitrate between two different parties, but as I thought about the idea of a mediator this week, while I worked on this sermon, what I noticed is that there's actually a lot of mediation going on in my own life. I often find myself mediating with my family, whether it's between kids who are fighting over toys or who gets to sit in what seat of the car, or me mediating between my kids and my wife as there's some sort of dispute in the house. But I also, just as often, if not more, found myself needing mediation. Whether it was Katie calling me out for raising my voice to the kids or not treating them justly, or whether it was the kids calling me out 
for the way I was treating Katie. Often, I needed mediation as much as I was giving mediation. And I'm sure the same is, is true for you if you reflect on it in the different places where you interact with people, whether it's your family, your job, wherever you tend to interact with other people, there's often a need for mediation. So in the passage this morning, we're going to look at this idea. And we're going to look at it from three different perspectives. First, we're going to look at it from the perspective of the people, the nation of Israel. What's the problem? Why do they need a mediator between them and God? Second, we're going to look at Moses. What does he do as their mediator? Is he the kind of mediator that they need? Or does he fall short somehow of being a perfect mediator? And then finally, we're going to look at Jesus. How is Jesus the greater, better mediator? So let's start by looking at the people of Israel first. Look with me at chapter, uh, chapter 33, verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, depart, go up from here, you and the people whom I brought out of the land of Egypt. Down to verse 3. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. So right away, we're faced with the dispute, the problem. There's an issue between God and the people. Now we know from the last month of, of going through Exodus together, the people have grumbled over and over again in the desert. Drew's talked about grumbling uh, to the point where someone said he was grumbling about grumbling. The people have grumbled, and most recently they created this idol, this golden calf, in, a, in an attempt to replace God. And this is the source of the dispute between God and his people. This is the this is why God says, you are a stiff-necked people. Chapter 32, as Jonathan told us last week, was very direct about calling the people's actions here a great sin. And so what I want us to see as we talk about the people and their need for a mediator is that sin is destructive in its effects. It's destructive in what it does both internally and externally to people. As I was reflecting on that this week, I came across an illustration that I thought would be helpful for us to picture the way that sin works. I want you to imagine a nuclear reactor meltdown. The meltdown of the reactor is the sinful action itself. But that action, that meltdown, is only the beginning of the damage that's done by that meltdown. Most or many of you have probably heard of the Chernobyl nuclear disaster in Ukraine. A design flaw in this nuclear reactor led to a power surge that caused a massive explosion in the reactor. Now, initially, around 50 to 100 people died in the accident or in the, in the first few months after the accident. But listen to these other effects. In the Ukraine, uh, cases of cancer amongst children increased 90% in five years after the disaster. 
5,000 cases of thyroid cancer were registered in the first 20 years after the disaster. All told, the World Health Organization estimated that around 5,000 people died because of the Chernobyl disaster. And this doesn't include any of the environmental or economic damages by this meltdown. So this one flaw, this one reactor meltdown had destructive effects far beyond the immediate time and place. And this is what sin does. Because it's like a disease. It's like radiation. It brings death and destruction everywhere that it goes. And in our text, we see how destructive it is because it breaks the people's relationships with one another and with God. We know that it's that serious because of the results. God's still faithful to his promise that he gave the people. They can still go to the promised land. But because of their sin, God can no longer go with them. He can't be near them because they're so radioactive with sin. And we didn't even read this section, but in verses 7 through 11, the tent where Moses met with God has to be placed outside of the camp instead of in the midst of the people. These are the devastating consequences of sin for the people. And so when we read this, we should be struck by two questions. First, do we consider our sin to be as destructive as this passage teaches us that it is? Does the, does the Chernobyl illustration resonate with you, or do you tend to think, okay, that, that was a little bit over the top? Because if you think it was a little bit over the top, pay attention to what God says in verse 3. He can't go with them, quote, lest I consume you on the way. Sin is so dangerous, it's so evil, and God is so holy that he can't be with his people without the concern that he might wipe them out because of it. That's how serious God thinks of sin. And so when you think about your own sin, do you consider the capacity that it has to destroy your life and your relationships? Now, if you're a Christian, you might be tempted, like I am, to say, well, yes, but Jesus died for all my sins. So that, that question doesn't really apply to me. And yes, absolutely, if you're in Jesus, then all of your sins are paid for at the cross. But we shouldn't forget that sin also has earthly consequences, even for those who follow Jesus. And if we aren't careful, we can use the grace and forgiveness of the cross to dull our senses to the danger of sin. Remember that in the New Testament, Peter was writing to Christians when he said, be watchful. The devil is prowling like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Sin devours people, like the radiation from Chernobyl. It devoured the Israelites, and it wants to devour me and you. So the first question, do we think of sin, our sin, as seriously as this passage treats it? And second, 
what do we really want more? Do we want the promises and blessings of God? Or do we want God himself? Because that's the, the question that faces the people here. They can still have the promised land. They can still have the blessings of a land flowing with milk and honey. But they have to wrestle with the question, is God simply a means to an end for them? Because he's not going with them. And so you and I have to wrestle with that. What, what would we do here? Do we want God's blessings? Or do we want God himself? And we should learn from the Israelites who finally do something right here. Look at verse 4. When the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned. They mourned. Because finally, they don't see the blessings of God as their ultimate goal. When they hear that he won't be going with them, they call it a disastrous word. And so I look at my own heart and I'm confronted with that question. Do I think of God's presence as that vital to my life? Or am I more concerned about the blessings that come from following him? The safety, the comfort, the blessings of being a Christian. And I think our failure in answering that question well is why we have such a hard time when we read passages from the New Testament, things that Jesus says or that Paul says about how we're going to suffer if we, follow, if we follow Christ, how we're going to suffer if we call ourselves Christians. We don't have a capacity to understand suffering because we view God as a means to an end, as a way to gain blessing. And I say we because I do this all the time. When things don't go well in life, when I experience some sort of suffering or I don't get something I want, my immediate thought is, God, what are you doing? Haven't you seen how I followed you, how I served you? Don't I deserve better than this? So my immediate reaction is anger toward God for suffering. Instead, I and we should learn from the Israelites here. We should learn to mourn over our great sin and long for God's presence, not just his blessing. So the people have sinned a great sin, as chapter 32 told us. We've seen the destructive results of that sin for them and their relationship with God. They're now mourning because God cannot go with them. And so what's going to happen? How can this tension, this dispute, how can their sin get resolved? Well, let's look together at Moses, the mediator. Look with me at verses 15 and 16 of chapter 33. And Moses said to God, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? Moses gets that God's presence is everything. He says, God, if you aren't going with us, then we might as well just stay here. 
But if you're not going with us, then what's the point of all this? I thought this was your people, a people you rescued that you specifically called out of Egypt to show your favor to. And this is where we see Moses as the mediator. In chapter 32, last week, Moses already stood and made the case for God against the people, right? He called them out for their great sin. Now he's standing and making the case for the people before God. And his case is simple. God, this is your people. Yes, they've sinned, but they need you. And they need mercy, and they need grace. And in this case, Moses is begging for mercy and grace moves God on behalf of the people. This is a powerful moment in Scripture because don't miss that Moses puts himself at risk here. He didn't grumble in the wilderness. He didn't make the golden calf. Yet he says, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. How shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people? Moses embraces his membership among the sinful people of God. Because he could, he could have said, you know, yes, those people, God, they're sinful, but, but you should show them mercy. Or he could have even said, yeah, you know, they're sinful, they're evil, why don't you start over again with me? But instead, as a mediator, he owns the defense of the people. He counts himself among them for their sake. And God listens to him. Verse 17, God says, This very thing that you have spoken, I will do. For you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Isn't that amazing? God sees Moses and he allows his relationship with Moses to move him to grace and forgiveness on behalf of the entire people that Moses represents. That's a mediator. And keep that in the back of your mind because this event is the first shadow, the first pointer to something greater to come. And we'll get back to that in a few minutes. So Moses, hearing God's response, is also clearly moved by the grace that he sees from God. And so he asks in verse 18, God, please show me your glory. Moses recognizes what's happening here. He sees that God has allowed him this incredible privilege to mediate between the people and God. And so he's moved to see more of God. Do we do that when we see the mercy of God? Or do we think, oh, I escaped. I escaped that sin. Or do we say, gosh, now I need to know more of you. That's what Moses does. He wants to know as much of God as he possibly can. He wants to see God's glory. But perhaps here, Moses forgets that while he is the mediator, he's still directly tied to one of the two parties. 
God tells him in verse 20. Yes, you can see my glory, but you can't see my face because you're still a man. God reminds Moses, and he reminds us as the readers here, that as great as Moses is, he's still a sinful man. God cannot show his face to Moses, or Moses would die. And so, in this famous moment in Scripture, this would be a whole sermon in of itself, God hides Moses in the cleft of the rock, and he passes by him so that Moses can see the back of his glory. And this moment is part of a series of moments Reminders that Moses is the mediator, but he's not God. Chapter 33, verse 1, the Lord said to Moses, cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets. It's, it's God who writes his words on the tablets. Moses is not the author of the commandments of God. He tells the people what God says, but his words are not God's words. And this is also another shadow of something greater to come. And again, Moses gets it. Verses 5 through 9, God comes down to meet Moses on the mountain. He declares his name. He declares his character, his love for sin. And Moses' reaction, verses 8 and 9, Moses quickly bowed his head to the earth and worshiped. And he said, if now I found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people. And pardon our iniquity and our sin and take us for your inheritance. Moses sees that while he is the privileged mediator, he is not God. He is a sinful man. And because of that, he knows that his mediation on behalf of the people will always be insufficient because he himself needs forgiveness and mercy. He needs his iniquity and his sin to be pardoned just like the rest of the people. When he comes down the mountain in verse 29, his face shines because he's been talking with God. Moses reflects God's glory to the people, because he'd been with God, not because he was God. And again, this is a shadow pointing us to something greater. So what do all these shadows point to? Well, I think they point to the fact that what people, what me and you really need, what Moses needs, is a greater mediator. Our sin problem, the problem that this entire passage is about, can ultimately, cannot ultimately be corrected by finding the right church or the right pastor or reading the right books or even becoming good enough yourself. If Moses, God's chosen man for the job, isn't good enough to be perfect, to be the ultimate mediator than you and I aren't either. And no church is, and no pastor is. We need something greater. We need a mediator who somehow 
tied to both parties, humanity and God. Someone that's a human, but is also perfectly holy and sinless. So who are these shadows in Exodus 33 and 34 pointing to? Turn with me to Matthew chapter 17. It's on page 822 of the Pew Bible there in front of you, or I believe it's going to be up on the screen behind us. And I want you to just read along silently as I read out loud. And I want you to look for those shadows that I mentioned. Matthew 17, verses 1 through 8. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I'll make three tents here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And a voice from the cloud said, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. Now, I don't know if that hits you as powerfully as it did for me as I was preparing this sermon on Friday afternoon in the church office. Um, I got to this passage, and I knew I was going here in the sermon, um, but as I began reading it, I was so moved by it that I just started to weep. I was alone in the office, so I'm sure if, if anyone had shown up, they wouldn't have known what to make of me crying in the conference room surrounded by Bible commentaries. It's a very, a very Presbyterian thing that the Presbyterian pastor is going to cry, certainly surrounded by commentaries is the place where it might happen. But let me unpack this for you. Why is this passage so powerful in relation to what we've been talking about this morning? You see, Jesus takes the disciples up on the mountain like Moses went up on the mountain. But these shadows of Moses, the mediator on the mountain, become full reality here. Moses' face shown because he'd met with God. Jesus' entire being shines like the sun because he is God. Moses relayed the words of God to the people by showing them the tablets that God had written. Jesus is the very word of God in flesh. Moses tells the people what God commanded. God tells the disciples, listen to Jesus. Moses was an imperfect mediator who was still tied to sinful humanity. Jesus is the greater, perfect mediator who is both God and man. 
the beloved son with whom the father is well pleased. And so while Moses has to beg God and ask him to refrain from killing the people and instead forgive them and pardon their sin, Jesus asks to be killed for the people. And he gives his spirit as an eternal presence with them. And then I love the way this passage ends. Like Moses, who, by the way, was actually there, if we needed any more indication that these two passages are connected, like Moses, the disciples fall down on their face. And it says that they were terrified. Why? Well, because they realize they are looking at God in the flesh. And they know this passage this morning. They know that if anyone sinful sees God's face, they're going to die. And so they're terrified. But then look at this. Jesus touched them and said, rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. So what Jesus is saying is don't be afraid of seeing me. You won't die. I will. I'll die so that you might live. And so this morning I leave you with one very simple application. When you're overwhelmed by sin, your sin, others' sin around you, what we see in the world, when death and judgment and uncertainty seem to crowd all around you, when you aren't sure where God is or what he's doing, look to Jesus. Turn like the disciples and look at the face of the one who died so that you wouldn't have to fear. And like Peter, you can say, Lord, it is good that we're here. Amen. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for being the greater mediator, the one who's perfect, the one who gives himself for us. And as we go to the table, we ask you to be with us. Be with us in the bread and the wine. Remind us that we can look to you. We can taste and know that you are good because of the work of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Um, I, I don't know if you've ever, you know, I, I get in a pattern sometimes of just hearing the benediction and not looking at the words. And I think in our passage today, we talk so much about God's face and whether we should be afraid of that or whether we should find comfort and joy in that. And remember that Jesus said, have no fear. And that's why when we read that the Lord's face is upon us, we can leave with the joy of that. So hear the Lord's benediction. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen.